Sentire Media. Hello everyone, you're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 105, The Battle of the Bucket. There is a legend in the area of the Apennines south of the town of Modena. According to this legend, it is bad luck to look into a well by the moonlight and see the reflection of the moon in the water. One possible explanation for this comes from a battle, that of Zappolino in 1325. The defeated soldiers were trying to escape during the night, following a clash that had come about in the late afternoon, and some of them hid in wells. The victorious enemy giving chase, thanks to the moonlight, were able to look into the wells and see their enemy, and, well, their luck was up. All this talk of wells leads me to a consideration. We all, hopefully, have something we can be proud of. Some of us are good at sports, for example, not me, or wood carving, or painting, perhaps a subject at school, and so on. If there was one thing the modernese were proud of in the early 14th century, it was their ability at making wells. The kind of wells they were good at making were called artesian aquifers. The term artesian comes from the current-day French area of Artois, and apparently the modernese were so good at making these wells that in said area in France they are known as modernese. I haven't been able to double-check this information, mostly because I wasn't really bothered about it. So, if you are listening from the area of Artois, or if you are an expert on wells, please let me know if this is true. For the moment, let's take that information and put a pin in it. Let me tell you a little bit about Modena. It's a relatively small city in the northern Italian region of Emilia-Romagna. Its northern part sticks out into the Po Valley and reaches up to the great Po River itself, and its southern part stretches into the Apennines and borders with Tuscany. It is well known for being the hometown of Luciano Pavarotti, and also the place where Ferraris are made. On a culinary level, Modena is well known for its balsamic vinegar, with the good stuff taking more than 20 years to mature in a very complicated process. The historical centre, like many in Italy, is similar to other cities in the area, but is not without its own beautiful particularities. The Ghirlandina Cathedral, for example, is quite an impressive building, and I have quite fond memories of a Bob Dylan concert I attended under its shadow. For many years, centuries actually, inside this cathedral, you could find an unusual historical object. A bucket. By now, many of my faithful listeners probably know exactly what I'm talking about. 
In case you don't, we'll get there in just a bit. The other protagonist of our story is the city of Bologna. It's perhaps better known than that of Modena and has had its own episodes in this podcast, so she'll have to be content with that. I'll be linking the episodes in the show notes. One last thing before we do start. I just want to quickly go through the reasons why I have decided to cover this topic, among the many I could have done in this period. First of all, I was inspired by an awesome YouTube channel, which you probably already know about since it has thousands of subscribers and hundreds of thousands of views, called Oversimplified. They do cartoon versions of events in history, and they are just the best. Funny, well-researched, informed, just generally great. They, of course, have done an episode called The War of the Bucket, which I highly recommend you go and check out. It also gives some background on the whole Guelph and Ghibelline business. Then, the battle is a good example of how politics worked at the time and some of the players involved. Indeed, the battle we are about to talk about is not just Modena versus Bologna, but it also involved Florentines, the Este of Ferrara, Azzone Visconti of Milan, and so on. The labels given to the two sides are those of Guelphs and Ghibellines, although they had departed quite a bit from their original meaning. In short, the battle is a good example of the wheelings and dealings and struggles that were going on in 14th century Italy. It was also one of the biggest and bloodiest battles in the Italian Middle Ages. Yet another reason to cover the battle is that it crosses over into Italian literature. Indeed, the late 16th century Italian writer Torquato Tasso wrote a humorous epic poem about it called the Secchia Rapita, the Stolen Bucket. The only problem is that he places the battle at the time of Frederick II, who had actually been dead for 75 years by the time this battle occurred. He confuses it with another battle, that of Fossalta, in which the son of Frederick II, Enzo, was captured by the Bolognese. The battle we're going to talk about, as we said, is the Battle of Zappolino. Lastly, this for me is a local affair. I could hop into the car right now and be in Modena in about a quarter of an hour. So, we're almost ready to get going to the background and events that would lead up to the Battle of Zappolino. Before we go there, a last word from a couple of our sponsors. So, are we finally ready to go to battle? Let's go. The provinces of Bologna and Modena share a border, and in the Middle Ages that usually meant that you either fell under the influence of your neighbour or were in a constant state of conflict with them. Bologna had an impressive line of fortifications along the river Panaro, which marked that border. Part of this line of fortification in the Apennine section were the fortresses of Zappolino and Monteveglio. Those of you who are particularly attentive will remember that the latter, Monteveglio, 
had belonged to the Countess Matilda of Tuscany in the late 11th century and had been under siege by Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV in Matilda's darkest hour, when she had decided to continue with the fight and then defeated the Emperor at the Battle of the Fog. Things had never been peaceful between Bologna and Modena, but in the year 1325 they hadn't actually had an open conflict for over 30 years. The last time had been in 1296, in which Bologna had taken lands from Modena with the blessing of the then-Pope Boniface VIII. You see, in the whole Guelphs versus Ghibellines business, Bologna was Guelph and Modena Ghibelline. This also brought into play a series of alliances. Indeed, on the Modernese side, we find Milan with Azzone Visconti, Ferrara with Obizzo d'Este, Verona with Can Grande della Scala and Lucca with Castruccio Castracani. Now, you know by now how I enjoy stopping to point out unusual names. The nobleman from Verona, Can Grande della Scala, would translate into Big Dog of the Stairs. If that isn't enough for you, Castruccio's surname, Castracani, means Dog Castrator. So, Big Dog and Dog Castrator, would you believe it, were actually allies. The actual leader of Modena at the time was a man by the name of Passerino Bonaccolsi. Passerino means little sparrow, which sounds lovely, but he was known as being a rather cruel man. For example, when a certain Rosso della Cipolla, or Ginger of the Onion, showed up asking to meet Passerino from a besieged city, Passerino, suspecting Rosso of being a spy, sent him back into the city via catapult. It did not end well for Ginger. On the Bolognese side, we had some other troops from cities in the Romagna area under the command of one of the Malatesta family, Malatestino, and some Florentines. Malatesta means badhead and Malatestino means little badhead. Bologna herself at the time was governed by a captain of the people by the name of Fulceri da Calboli, an unusual name, but not quite funny. The action started when Obizzo d'Este and Cangrande della Scala, big dog of the stairs, took the fortress at Sassuolo and Passerino, the little sparrow, took Castellarano. Incidentally, in Castellarano there is a nice open-air rock disco I used to go to called Rockville. I doubt it was open back then. In response, Malatestino Malatesta for the Bolognese side went raiding into the Modernese territory for some booty and supplies and also just to be annoying. Things got really serious when on the 29th of September 1325 the Ghibellines managed to take the key fortress of Monteveglio thanks to a defection to their side by the garrison there. The Bolognese Guelph side took their sweet time but eventually sent up an army to try and take back the fortress by the 15th of October. At this point there was a bit of a stalemate. The Modernese needed to get across the Panaro River if they were going to do any real damage. And they couldn't seem to find the right point. 
The problem was that the right points were mostly teeming with Bolognese and Guelph troops. At this point, the Modernese faked a passage much further north, out of the Apennines, near a place called Ponte Sant'Ambrogio. The trap worked a charm. The Bolognese headed down out of the mountains to stop the breach, leaving the Modernese to cross the river at a place called Muzza. They were now over the river and in Bolognese territory. The clash was inevitable. The Guelphs moved back again to try and defend the other important fortress of the defensive chain, the castle of Zappolino. They managed to get there before the Ghibellines, but not long before. The Ghibelline forces arrived to see an endless forest of spears manoeuvring to get into position in the valley at the feet of the hill where the castle of Zappolino stood. It was the 15th of November, 1325. The numbers were greatly in favour of the defending Bolognese Guelphs, as far as infantry went. Different chroniclers put the number at anywhere from 30,000 versus 8,000 to 20,000 versus 5,000. In any case, a ratio of about 4 to 1. Things were better balanced as far as mounted knights were concerned, with between 2,000 and 2,500 per side, perhaps with a bit more on the Modernese Ghibelline side. Whatever the number may have been exactly, it was one of the largest battles in medieval Italian history and one of the bloodiest. The supreme Ghibelline commander was another member of the Este family, Rinaldo, and the disadvantage in numbers to his side was immediately very clear to him. However, so was something else. The larger defending army had placed itself with its back to the hill of the castle of Zappolino. In the valley, which they were now occupying almost in its entirety, and the only way out now being blocked by Rinaldo's own Ghibelline Modernese alliance. Perhaps this very large enemy army crowded into the valley was a little bit too large for its own good. There was only one thing for it, to hit hard and fast in a typical medieval cavalry charge. Rinaldo declared the battle in the name of St. George and gave the order. It worked perfectly and it worked very quickly. The attack in the midst of the crowded troops and horses sent the defending army into a panic almost immediately. One chronicler said that many Bolognese troops ran from the field without ever attempting to fight. Another that one of the first to leave the field was the Bolognese captain of the people, Fulcieri himself. If you add to this mayhem the very typical yet surprisingly unpredictable cavalry unit led by a man named Gangolando Bertucci popping up out from behind a hill to crash into the defending army's side, screaming death to the dogs as they came, then the rout was assured. To their credit, a group made up of soldiers from cities of the Romagna area, some Florentines and exiled Modernese put up some resistance under the command of Malatestino Malatesta, but once they were overcome and their commander wounded, it was just a case of chasing down survivors. Since the battle had occurred in late afternoon, many Bolognese and their allies 
managed to make it to nearby castles and to safety. Those who hid in wells, apparently, as we saw at the beginning of the episode, were caught thanks to the light of the moon. The remaining Bolognese managed to make it all the way back to their city by the next day and closed the gates before the pursuing army showed up. They had no intention of setting up a long and drawn-out siege and taking Bologna. The damage had been done, the message delivered, and they did not have the men nor the means to take the city. They contented themselves with partying, gloating, jousting and races as the Bolognese could do nothing but look from atop their walls. It was at this point that outside the main walls, an old well with a bucket was found. To the expert artesian aquifer-making eyes of the Modernese, this bucket, this relic of what they saw as an inferior people, was good enough as a trophy to take back home. For centuries, some version of that original bucket sat, as we said, in the cathedral in Modena, to be then moved to the town hall, where you can see it to this very day. So, that was that. The Battle of the Bucket was over in a few hours. The peace treaty was signed on the 26th of January 1326, and the Modernese were rather lenient towards Bologna, who basically got back all of their lands. The fact that Passerino Bonacolsi, the ruler of Modena, came away loaded down with cash may have had quite a lot to do with this. In any case, it was enough for the head general of the army, Rinaldo d'Este, and Azzo Visconti to leave the negotiation table in disgust. In an ironic twist of fate, Rinaldo, who had commanded over the victory for the Modernese, died just under ten years later of disease while besieging Modena. This was not out of any grudge he held, but just how the politics of the time worked. Although the immediate consequences for Bologna were not as heavy as expected, there were a few consequences that would haunt the city. The first was of a more practical kind. Having understood that they weren't safe with all the Ghibelline forces arrayed against them, they felt the need to turn to the Pope and accept a papal legate in their city, Bernardo del Poggetto, the year after the battle. They would not manage to get out from under the influence of the papacy until 1859, on the eve of Italian unification. The other consequence was more symbolic. Until that point, the struggle between Modena and Bologna had been characterised by the victory of Bologna at the Battle of Fossalto and the capture of King Enzo of Sardinia, son of Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II. Now the glory of that victory and of their prisoner king had been substituted by the infamy of defeat and a bucket. Thanks very, very much to everyone for listening. 
Thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon supporters. And as the year closes off, I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. You've really helped out this year. The first part of the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level. Anthony G, Brian J, Selene, Chanel, Chris, David L, Dean, Douglas, Greg, Ignacio, Jeff M, Jeffrey W, Old John in Milwaukee, and Kevin. Then the Tippy Top, Maria Montessori and Dante Ligieri level, Paolo, Lisa K, JW, Andrew M, Brandon S, Maxime, David A, Peter W, and Kevin O, and of course, we can never forget, Sen. Thank you, thank you, one and all. Remember, if you feel so inclined, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, you can click through to our social media. We are on Facebook and Twitter and on Instagram, though rather inactive there. And you can have a look at timelines and maps. You can also go to our support page where you can become a Patreon supporter and have access to extra content. Or just donate via good old PayPal. Once again, thanks very much to everyone for listening. And until next time, arrivederci. Before listening to the upcoming sketch, I just wanted to tell you that some of the names in the sketch are totally made up. Others, a surprising number, are real existing Italian surnames. Also, I wanted to make it clear that my daughter has no idea what the last name means and hopefully will not for several years to come. Ah, dog castrator. Good to see you. What are you up to? Well, hello there, dog wetter. Good to see you too. I'm just going for an inspection of the enemy walls. Care to join me? With pleasure. I was just waiting for my good friend from Modena, Pigeon Tickler. But he appears to be a bit late. I think I saw him talking to big hairy ones. Never mind, I'll catch you up with him later. I hear you did well in the battle. Was it you who captured the enemy commander? You mean naughty face silly teeth? Yes, but he was already wounded. Very brave fellow. Indeed. Better than that other fellow, the one who ran off. You mean, scaredy cat, stinky pants? Yes, that's the chap. Ran like a rabbit. I say, you'll be looking forward to getting home to that new wife of yours. What family was she from again? Oh, yeah. Um, she's a slut. Is she now? Well, you did well for yourself there. Good normal family, do sluts. Good job. What about you, old man? Didn't you marry... Who was it? A, a bum cheek? Oh, no, no. That was my brother. I have my eye on a tree hugger. Oh, do you mean the family or is he just environmentally active? The family. Ah, good show, good show. I say, look at this old relic. Is that... It is. It's an old well. And look, they even have a bucket in it. 
what century are these people in anyway? The 12th? <laughs> oh, oh. Hey, you, Bolognese person up there. What is this old pile of rubbish? Uh, it, it's a well, dude. I'll bet you haven't even heard of an artesian well. <laughs> oh, bad! <laughs> Whatever, dude. <laughs> uh, we'll hold on to this. Don't die of thirst. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> Did you recognize that guy from the battle? That guy? Yes, he was always off on his own, you know, doing his own thing. What was his name? Um... I believe it was um, Monkey Spanker. You mean Scaredy Cat Stinky Pants? Scaredy Cat Stinky Pants. You mean Scaredy Pat? <laughs> <laughs> Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.